There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the latest episode of Close Readings. In this series, which we have called The Long and Short, because we're looking at a series of long poems and short stories written over the last 175 years or so, from Tennyson and James to the present day. And as always, as we do so, we'll be calling upon the rich archive of reviews and essays and other pieces to be found in the back numbers of the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English at Balliol College in Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, poet, critic and professor of English at University College London. And today, as a bit of an experiment, we are not discussing a poet or a short story writer on their own, but taking one of each and thinking of them together. We're looking at Nella Larson's remarkable short story, perhaps even a novella, of 1929 called Passing, and Langston Hughes's no less striking long poem of 1951 called Montage of a Dream Deferred. So, Mark, what these two writers have in common is that they are prominent members of what literary historians have come to think of as the Harlem Renaissance. So we should say something about that before we kick off. Uh, yes, it was um, a movement in the 20s, and the first movement in which black writers found themselves in the position of having both public and publishers. It was kind of kick-started perhaps by Gene Toomer's Cain of 1923, which proved very popular. It's a collection of kind of short stories or vignettes um, stitched together with bits of poetry in between. The kind of godfather of the movement worth mentioning is W.E.B. Du Bois, whose Souls of Black Folk of 1903 is uh, absolutely fantastic collection of essays and stories and which developed the notion that black writers could achieve a, a huge following and a large public platform and Du Bois was an intellectual and um, a genius. But then the new generation which in the Harlem Renaissance included such as uh, Alan Locke who's an anthologist who brought them together, poets such as County Cullen, Claude Mackay and a whole set of kind of short story writers, novelists and poets. And they had a magazine called Crisis, or Du Bois edited Crisis, and a lot of their work would appear in that and in, in other Harlem magazines. So it was an efflorescence. And Larson and Hughes were both there in the 20s, though Hughes was actually still an undergraduate until the mid-20s. But he was well known. He became extremely famous pretty young and he remained famous all his life and in that it's a really interesting comparison with Larson who published just two novels Quicksand in 1928 and Passing in 1929 and then sort of disappeared from the scene in that she's like Zora Neale Hurston whose Their Eyes Were Watching God was kind mm. of rediscovered by mm. Alice Walker and uh, Passing again had to be resurrected but it has really been resurrected in yep. in a serious way there are two pieces on it in the LRB it's a film uh, it was on Netflix, which was terrific. And there's a sense in which I find lots of students very interested in writing on passing, partly because it's such a fascinating topic. Yes, and I suppose it, it brings into play, doesn't it, a very timely concepts to do with ethnicity, uh, but also about 
performance and about appearance and uh, the ways in which your racial self-identification can be something which you assume but is also something which you inherit and you have no choice about. I mean, lots of interesting, very contemporary issues meet up in this novel, in yes. this novella. Yes, yeah. and they, they, of course, derive back to the 19th century when passing might enable you to get from the south to the north if you could pass as white. And there's a very uh, satirical bleak novel by Mark Twain called Puddinghead Wilson, which is about two brothers. And one torments the other and, and it's unclear to the brothers. One of them is white and the other isn't white, uh, but is so light that it can't be told. But Twain has terrific kind of sardonic fun with that particular relationship. And um, so it was a trope, not only in literature, but a fact in cultural life. And it it throws into all kinds of fascinating, if somewhat stomach-churning relief or context, the whole notion of uh, America's uh, attitudes towards race and Jim Crow laws, mm. which, uh, I mean, we should say that both Hughes and Larson had all sorts of different kind of racial bloodlines in them. Hughes likes to itemise them and that he had a kind of Jewish grandfather, he had a Cherokee grandmother, I mean, all, all sorts of different... And he goes to Africa in the big sea and and all the Africans say, you're not African, what are you, doing? What are you claiming to be African mm, for? Mm. Of course, when he's in America, he has to sit at the back of the bus or go in the Jim Crow car, he can't get a cup of coffee, can't get into a taxi. So Jim Crow laws, which operated really throughout his life or in, until the civil rights movement were something that he committed his whole poetic creative life to both kind of challenging and fighting and that involved him in all sorts of politics. Larson wasn't interested in politics in quite that way but Passing is a novel which foregrounds the kind of dilemma of someone like Larson who had a uh, she had a Danish mother and her father was half Danish um, from the sort of Danish Caribbean island um, she didn't know him uh, but then she was brought up as a sort of second-class citizen mm, mm. in the family. So mm. the issues were very much alive to her. Absolutely. So as as we're saying, they are, they are both writers about Harlem, but they're writing about very different sort of aspects of Harlem in a way, aren't they? Hughes is interested, as we'll come on to say later on, in um, uh, quite a kind of like sort of rough street life side of Harlem uh, with some you know, brilliant vignettes of, of, you know, fairly kind of ragged kind of social life. Larson's version of Harlem is actually in some ways quite affluent, isn't it? It's actually quite posh. I mean, she's quite interested not only in um, analysing uh, these lives, which have a certain degree of affluence to them, but is also clearly very attracted to it herself. Yes, I mean, she did uh, the upper echelons of Harlem society mm. is what she describes in both quicksand and passing. And it obviously raises issues in terms of thinking about the position of the Harlem writers. To what extent were they modelling uh, Harlem society on the codes of white society, mm. you know, up, upper echelons of white society. So, yes, she does talk about the, mainly characters from what might call the black aristocracy. And she has one called Hugh Wentworth, who's based on Carl Van Vechten, who was a real shaker and mover in um, Harlem life. He was a, a white writer, but he um, was a kind of literary figure. Uh, he wrote a book called N-Word Heaven, which was described Harlem life in some detail. And he helped get both Larson and Hughes published by Knopf. So uh, he was a kind of broker for them and one of the people who made their careers uh, happen. So he's one of these um, uh, interesting intellectuals of the 1920s 
who's a white man who goes to look at black people in Harlem, which is, in a funny kind of way, as Irene points out in passing, exactly what Claire is also interested in doing. She wants to keep going back to Harlem to look at the black community from which she has exiled herself. I think we have to accept as the sort of premise of passing that Claire is deeply lacking some sense of belonging in relation to her black community, that passing, although she seems kind of callous and selfish and self-obsessed and in many ways makes choices which are hard to admire, certainly Irene doesn't admire them, but I think driving her up to Harlem is a sense that having passed, this isn't working for her mm. as a person, that, that she craves in a sort of deep fundamental way connection to the black community from which she has exiled herself. So she lives on this kind of appalling fault line. <laughs> Any moment things might erupt and the scenes are sort of utterly excruciating in terms of this secret. She marries a guy called Jack Bellew who is a, a thoroughgoing racist. You know, a, He's a really... an absolute bigot of, of almost cartoonish atrocity. <laughs> yes, um, and yet she engineers a tea in Chicago after the encounter on the roof, which we'll talk about in a minute, in which three women who are all very light-skinned and are passing uh, have to listen to Jack Bellew's racist diatribes. And for Irene, this is utterly excruciating and that's the reason that she doesn't want anything to do with Claire, though Claire, in the end, overcomes her resistance. So there's not much ambiguity, I suppose, about Claire's motives for passing herself off as, as white, is there? It seems fairly clear from both what she says, but also what Irene thinks about her, that she does it for one reason, which is, in her own words, that she wanted things. So it's material advantage seems to be... What's making her make this move? Yes, her, her, when her father dies at the age of 15, she goes to live with aunts who are white. The aunts just make her do work mm. in the kitchen and so yeah. on. They don't educate her or bring her up as an equal. But she uses that platform to have relationship with this guy, Jack Bellew, who marries her when she's only 18. And he thinks she's white. And uh, he has a very unfortunate nickname for her, which, which kind of foregrounds the awfulness of her situation. And... Both Irene and Claire are presented to us as very sophisticated characters who live in a kind of cosmopolitan intellectual world and they are, in some ways, they're closer to the heroines you meet in Virginia Woolf and Larson was a big Woolf fan mm. um, or in Henry James in the sophistication of their responses. So in many ways, passing is avoiding many of the tropes uh, which white readers looked for in black writing, which were a sort of primitivism. For instance, um, Langston Hughes had a had a patroness who gave him money to write a novel <laughs> or series of short stories, uh, which would emphasise the primitiveness of black American life. Yes. And he had problems with that, obviously. So not only are Harlem Renaissance writers dealing with the uh, kinds of self-expression that they want to explore, they're dealing with kind of white stereotypes of what black writers should be like. Yes. And passing outwits that comprehensively by being closer in its experience for me to something like The Turn of the Screw, in which there's this appalling secret which causes excruciating psychological difficulties for all the characters and is kind of irresolvable and ends like The Turn of the Screw in, in tragedy and death. In a catastrophe. Yes, yes, it is. A, it is a very, very powerful story about something that that remains unspoken, doesn't it? Something that remains unsaid, 
because of that, I suppose, in, in exactly in the same way as turn of the screw, it is, um, as James Campbell points out in his piece in the NRB, it's got something of the quality of a thriller about it, hasn't it? I mean, it's got all these very profound and subtle insights into the psychology of living within a racist culture. But at the same time, it's got a it's got an extraordinarily sort of old-fashioned narrative thrill to it. Yes, and it ends up, you know... With making, melodrama, really. Making use yes. of melodrama, yes. exactly. Um, so the ending is melodramatic. Thanks for listening to this extract from The Long and Short, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. To listen to the full episodes and all our other close reading series, sign up to our close reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.